Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. Okay, you are tuning in to another episode of Zoom Cron. That's short for Zoom Town Chronicles, and I'm your host, Travis Mateer. Um, this is episode five, and I recorded this conversation with Allison McDowell all the way back in January of 2021. So I think it was like the 25th of January, posted it the 26th. Um, a lot has happened, actually, since I interviewed Allison McDowell. Um, this was very early in my podcasting days, and I, I was just sort of aware of Allison's uh, research into technocratic, uh, oh, I'm forgetting some of the buzzwords she's into, but um, it, she's a very interesting person and I still very much value her research, but things have, have sort of changed with her relationship to people in the crypto world and the crypto space. And so um, in the show notes, I will include a bunch of blog posts that I wrote after this interview um, and after I started understanding that there was this, this rift that had developed and Allison was a big part of creating this rift. Um, and not helping resolve this rift. And the rift is still ongoing. Uh, there's a guy named Raul Diego um, who used to report for Mint Press and got sort of involved with uh, Whitney Webb, an amazing researcher. Um, and I will try and find that that uh, interview that Whitney Webb did with Ryan Christian on Rockfin that helps kind of color uh, some of the drama around this. And, and I say drama, but it is actually important to put this in context because these rifts can be very destructive um, to those of us that are trying to resist a totalitarian, authoritarian, technocratic regime um, that wants to centralize power and um, basically look at us as cattle and and do some social engineering crazy shit with us. So um, again, Alison McDowell still very much value her research, but um, there is aspects now of, of what she's putting out there that um, is, is creating, I think, some additional challenges that really we don't have time for. So um, I offer that as a precursor to, I think, a pretty good conversation. So here you go, Allison McDowell on Zoomcron. Okay, so it looks like we are recording. I have with me today... This evening, a very, very patient and understanding Allison McDowell, um, and she is here on the fourth episode of Zoom Town, and the title of this episode is going to be A Possible Path for Zoom Town, and I'm not sure if Allison is aware of the term Zoom Town, so I can ask that first question. Is, is that something that you're familiar with, Allison, the term Zoom Town? Yeah. Fill me in, please. Okay, well, this is my definition. It is an actual term. It's playing. It's a play on words. So instead of Boomtown, right? It's it's oh, Zoomtown. So I my imagine. Okay, like remote work. Yeah. So my definition is a Zoomtown is an idyllic location, like a resort town, where one of certain means and skills can work remotely in our new normal. The remote working is done largely through the platform Zoom, hence the name. So Zoomtown. Wow. So yeah, no, I can see that totally. Yes. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, in the lens that I'm looking at at what's going on in this particular community in Missoula, 
um, was through my work as a service provider in the, the nonprofit world as, as a person working directly with folks on the street. So I worked at a homeless shelter for seven years. Um, and, and one of the, the trends that's interested me is the trend of gentrification. And so gentrification was something that I started looking at in terms of policy, you know, kind of years ago. Um, and as that relates to trying to get clients into housing, you know, the desperation, I guess, with the lives of people on the streets, which is something that was so palpable to me, I really wanted to understand the systems in which they were they were navigating. And I know um, from listening to to you on other podcasts, which I mean, I just heard your name mentioned today, actually listening to the Higher Side Chat and Ross Ben. Ross Ben spoke highly okay. of Sister Allison McDowell. And, and so um, your name is popping up everywhere. And I heard a little bit about your story and how you got into this, this world of research and understanding the dynamics of power that we're sort of um, having to deal with, uh, especially now. And so maybe speak a little bit to that. Uh, so listeners of this fresh podcast, this new podcast, can understand a bit about um, what you are getting into in terms of things like human impact markets, stakeholder capitalism, some of these big terms, um, you know, how did you start getting into, into these types of topics? Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm based in Philadelphia, so that's important to know. So big yeah. city, um, uh, a, a pretty poor city, but it's also sort of eds and meds, you know, as are the people who have money, that's what they're into. So it's, it's a quite um, disparate income, some small numbers of high income people and a lot of poverty. Mm -hmm. um, it's predominantly black city as well. Um, and so I got into this initially through, um, just as a parent um, around yeah. the issue of public education and school closures that happened here, like a wave of school closures. They shut 23 schools and laid off 3000 teachers in like 2013. And so that was just my first point at which I got involved in um, activism around that issue because it was directly impacting me and our family and our community. But then right. it eventually sort of segued into understanding that they were creating profit centers in um, various aspects of the sort of social benefit system of which public education is one. Maybe right. people aren't used to thinking of it as a public benefit, but that things like education, um, healthcare, access to healthcare, housing, food, um, addiction treatment, all of these things were becoming financialized um, to create essentially gambling markets. And I had sort of run my course in the education realm. Um, you know, I was working on uh, organizing around opting out of the high stakes testing and trying to raise awareness around that. But like I kind of hit a snag, eventually it wasn't going anywhere. And so I connected with um, some folks may have heard of her, her name is Sherry Hunkala. Okay. Um, she was a parent at um, another parent at my child's school um, at the time. And she is a housing rights activist and had been um, working in housing rights since the, I think the, at least the late eighties yeah, and yeah. in Philadelphia for, for many, many of those years, she's um, ran for vice president of the green party at one point with Jill Stein. So housing is really her issue. And I knew she, she has an organization here called the poor people's economic human rights campaign that is primarily um, uh, an organization led by poor the poor mm -hmm. um, and, and Sherry is in that category. She she lives in the center of the heroin epidemic with her family and is, is really like living this experience. So, um, you know, I connected with Sherry and I'm like, well, if if the people in the schools can't quite understand what I'm talking about, like this is going after everyone, um, including people who are unhoused, um, 
people who are in addiction, all of these things. So I sort of pivoted to looking at things through that lens for a while. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and our housing authority is a huge player in the space. And so it is both gentrification and displacement, but that is facilitated largely through the institutions that are supposed to be helping people. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting as you talk about, um, you know, language also part of part of the challenge, I think, you know, that I've certainly seen um, is, is how you how you even go about breaking down um, um, some of the terms that are used. I recently had a, a, a conservative city council member on and we had a great conversation about tax increment financing. And I refer to some of these terms as average Joe repellent. So it's a, it's a sort of, you know, these terms keep people from even wanting to approach it because it seems like you have to have a specialized education to even start understanding the terms being utilized. And I know you, you're studying or your research really goes back to 2013, um, your involvement, I guess I should say. Um, but going back to 2008 is when I started working at the homeless shelter and 2008 is when we had an economic crisis. Um, you know, great time to be working at the homeless shelter, right? 2008 and-, and Right, um, everyone put, yeah. Well, right, and and, and they're the going to be hitting it again, right? You know, like that's that's what's going to be rolling in pretty soon. Or and that's is. why when I tried to understand back then, I was a thirty-year-old um, individual that just started a family myself. So I had my first child in two thousand eight, and the the global economy was blowing up, and I was trying to figure out what these credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities meant. You know how you how you take mortgages and you start financializing them, breaking them apart into little increments. You know how how some idiot savant guy was able to figure this out and short the entire the entire market, um, and, and it seems like we could have learned some really good lessons back then about what not to do. But instead, it seems like there's been this sense of doubling down on financialization and and what you're doing, what your research has really I think helped people to do is is to to get the the empowerment themselves to start approaching these ideas and topics in a way that they can start wrapping their heads around these topics and then start understanding what this path might be for us. And so when it comes to, let's say, a homeless individual who is in an emergency shelter and has an addiction issue, um, I'm a desperate service provider wanting to get help in whatever way I can. So when the university from Wisconsin comes in, this is years ago, and they pitch an app, right? They pitch an app and they said, well, this app has the ability to be there 24 seven for this addict. And so if this addict is going to relapse, you know, maybe there can be the emergency contacts built into this phone app. Um, they can have uh, informative videos that, that will help them understand their, their addiction. And guess what? The geolocation that can even I can even figure out where where do they use and so they can program where they go to score drugs and then that can sort of tag a little notification for them if they're in the same neighborhood where they're scoring and and so back then as a person that was not aware of the dynamics that, that you've spent seven years researching you know I was willing to accept any sort of possible path for this individual because I saw them you know just killing themselves with drug addiction on the streets. And so that, that frustration from the service provider perspective um, is really, I think at this point, because um, it hasn't gotten better since then, it's gotten worse. And so willing to take any solution is a dangerous place to be if they know that we're willing to take any solution and they have those solutions prepackaged and ready to, to go. And this, this sort of sense of gamification and the financialization um, it is, is a disturbing trend where we're going and you're trying to raise the alarm now more than ever, I think. Right. Well, I mean, I, I wrote a, a blog post a couple years ago um, 
you know, essentially looking at um, equating it to that Twilight Zone episode where the the outer the spaceship comes down and they yeah. sort of you know, everyone's worried and they said, oh, here, here's our book. We come, you know, we come in peace. We're friendly. And then, um, you know, at a uh, certain, uh, you know, the woman is trying to translate the book and she's trying to figure it all out. And like, meanwhile, the people are getting on the spaceship and, and she's got it translated and she's running up and on the cover, it says to serve man. And she runs up and she goes, wait, wait, it's a cookbook. <laughs> you know, it's a cookbook. And and so what what's happening with these new sort of ways of doing innovative debt finance tied to public yeah. benefit systems, which is essentially what this is coming, is that instead of the mortgage debt, instead of health debt, and sorry, I think I'm clicking on the, the door a little bit, um, housing debt, yeah. it's going to be your debt for your addiction treatment, your debt for your housing voucher, your debt for your retraining, your reskilling. And yep. all of this debt is going to be linked into predictive analytics and data tracking and data, mm -hmm. data analytics on your behaviors. It's almost like I equate it to being trapped in a uh, augmented reality video game, right. you know, that the video game, the world as a video game. And I, I think probably a lot of people who are navigating poverty, they get that. Like, yeah. it's always been a game. Like, right. how do you navigate this game? It's just that the, the nature, the control system of the game is shifting and becoming, I, I would say, even more brutal than it already was and more intense and faster and harder. Um, yeah, so, yeah. you know, if we are creating, and this is the fundamental question, we have extreme wealth concentration around the world in the hands right. of a very small number of entities, individuals and institutions. Mm -hmm. It has to keep flowing. More and more people at the bottom are piling up and they have no liquidity and nothing. Right. If you create an investment model that allows you to keep pulling more money out of these poor bodies, there's going to be no amount of behaving that will make the money come down. Right. Like it's only right. going up. It's like some evaporation cycle, but it never rains down. It's only going up until those people are squeezed into non-existence, I think is what's happening. So to me, we have to address the, the global problem of wealth inequality, right. uh, you know, and, and access to basic needs, people's needs being met. And this is a global crisis. This is not, this is happening you know, many of these models were actually piloted in hum humanitarian, like aid development aid systems. Right. But now they're boomeranging right back into um, the domestic poor here in the US and Canada and yeah. Australia. You know, we, we saw that with the lockdowns in Australia. It was the public housing that was locked down. Right, right. And it's so interesting because I used to advocate the housing first model. And so when I was on the streets or when I was talking to uh, other nonprofits or other you know stakeholders, the, the housing first model was this federally driven model of, hey, we just need to get people into housing first, and then we start working on the addiction pieces. Um, and, and, you know, that makes sense to me. Like, let's just get them into housing, you know? Um, a person might start using less alcohol or, or, or less of a drug if they just get a basic level of security in, the, in their housing. But one of the one of the realities that, that I understood is when you get into the subsidized housing, then you have to follow the rules of the housing. And so one one example, we had one particular housing complex um, located in the downtown core, pretty close to the shelter. And so when clients would move into that housing, a lot of the other clients at the shelter would know where they were at. And, and so people wanted to, to give their friends a place to stay short term that could turn into a couple of weeks that violates the, the rules of the subsidized housing. And then boom, they're back on the streets because they, they broke the rules. 
Um, and, and, and so those kind of That's that with facial recognition and smart contracts. Well, and these kind of nitty gritty <laughs> problems then might have some, some technological solutions. And, and I had a chance, we've communicated a little bit via email and the, the federal acknowledgement of the failure of housing first, there's a new report and then came out with a list of tools. And I don't know if you had a chance to look over some of those tools, but um, you know, there's the importance and power of the dignity of work is one. Um, affordable construction leads to affordable housing. And that might be something to, to talk a little bit about because affordable construction gets tied up in very complicated tax incentives. Um, and, and so locally in Missoula, one of the things that I'm looking at is a, uh, it's a blue line development. So they are building affordable housing in the region. So not just in, in Montana, but Wyoming and Colorado and Utah. And it seems like one of the solutions for the complexities in, in subsidized housing is to have a sort of um, from start to finish uh, boutique development group that, that's able to get into the local municipalities, find the, the tax incentives, find the, the ways that state and local municipalities do all that for housing. Um, they will find the developers, they will work through projects. Um, and then so it seems like there's this model sort of developing on the, the affordable housing piece that if you're if you're connected, because in Missoula, it's certainly a, an incestuous politically connected environment in which the solutions just seem to happen to benefit the people closest to the, you know, the political spigot. Um, but but is did, if you, have you looked at those tools and it, have you noticed any of the tools specifically as it relates to the research that you've been doing in this path to improving human behavior and um, really finding ways for, I guess, uh, big finance to, to, to gamify trauma and poverty? Well, so uh, some of the, the models that I talk about, the innovative financial models, they're all right. based on this idea of um, predictively profiling an individual into a level of being a burden, a financial burden on society. Okay. Whether they there's someone who's actually been incarcerated or addicted and they actually ha are the burden already or have experienced that level of being a burden, quote unquote, right. or even if people have not ended up incarcerated or not maybe not even addicted, but they have various you know red flags that might indicate that that might be their possible future. Well, that, okay, that could so be like ACEs. Are, are you familiar with ACEs? Yeah, ACEs, yeah very much. The, the, the rubric. Now, you know, I, I want to be clear that I understand that, you know, these, that childhood trauma does have an impact, right? Like, I think it's very clear Absolutely. that those traumas have health impacts. But why is it a score and who developed the score? Well, that's Kaiser Permanente. And that's, it's scoring oh. for the predictive analytics for the pay for success. Right, right. It doesn't need to be a structured score. The score right. is going to be for the derivatives markets. Um, you know, and it's very deceptive, you know, like I, I believe, is it Gaber Mate? He's all about that too. And he was part tied with the injection center in Vancouver, who, as I understand, really never talks about pay for success finance, even though Philadelphia is going to be a model, you know, we're, they're aiming for really? us to be the, 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 the US model of insight based on Vancouver. Um, and there are people who are pitching wearable technology and, um, 
you know, I, I was with a, a friend oh. who was very active in that community, supporting that community. And we had a meeting with the public health director saying, you know, if we're the, if we are going to be, Philadelphia is going to be the model safe injection center for the country, we need to talk. And they always said it's going to be a public private partnership. It's not going to cost the city any money. Don't worry. It's going to be a right. public private partnership. And I said, well, if it's going to be impact finance, there's going to be data collected. And then there's the ethical question oh, of yes. knowing internet of bodies and wearable technology, are people in active addiction actually in any condition to give informed consent for that? Like, wow. what does that mean? And wow. I said, we need to have these bigger conversations. Like, can you actually give consent if you're not, if, if you're in addiction? Like, I don't right. think you can, but we should talk about that. And of course, you know, the guy who's like, you know, Harvard and, you know, MD, he's like, I only look at this. And I'm like, well, we need to look at this yeah. because the goal is, is the same. Like my feeling is, is that the safe injection center model, if it's a public private partnership, if it's structured as a, 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 a pay for success invest social impact investment opportunity, right, right. Um, then what you're going to get is going to be not unlike a housing first model, right? Like you, right. you capture individuals in, um, in an institutional setting. Mm -hmm. And then once they're sort of captured there, then you can start to layer on other impact services, right? Well, so, so, so how are, how are they housing, gonna... You can start doing all these other services, which right. are like verticals, right? Uh, if they're all impact, Things that get, once you've got someone, then you can start saying, well, the, we need to manage your diet. We need to manage your fitness. We need to manage your behavioral health. We, right. we, need, to we need to get you reskilled. We need to get you a wardrobe. Like all of those things become impact opportunities. And I think in some sense, the way I was envisioning this, this, um, the safe injection center was you give someone a safe place, which is great. Like I'm not against, but there were racial issues with it only being heroin or right. the opioids and not other people in other kinds of addiction, mm -hmm. because that was like, well, you just have someone with some Narcan and like, there's, there's pretty good, like, you're not gonna have someone come in and die likely on you, you know, yeah. in the same way. Um, so you can cheaply manage it, but you're not going to get people out of addiction. And that's the thing, like we're the center of the heroin epidemic and we're not getting people actually the level of support they need to get like fully rehabilitated it's just managed in their addiction so is that part of the the, the problem then the, the the persistent problem that they can then say and I, I hate to say they but in terms of wanting to let's say altruistically improve people's lives and they're just focusing on one piece of it safe injection sites you know but they're maybe they don't have housing so we need to include that and then we also need to include this other stuff because we're not going to be able to address this behavior unless we're looking at the whole health of the individual um, and so does that then do these different areas become portals sort of for the, then um, this acknowledgement that unless we're looking at the whole individual um, and here's the digital or the technocratic solution for that, then we're not going to get any kind of outcomes that we're looking for. And another part of, I guess, the question is, is how are they going to then start measuring outcomes? I mean, because isn't this part of an outcome-based model that is, that is giving financial incentive to these investors based on the outcomes that are being produced. And so, I mean, isn't there some kind of measurement that they're going to have to show that that improvement is being made to yeah, justify the like model? The, it, it, it's, but it's short term. It'll be like, right. okay, so the person's clean for 90 days, right? Or the person got employment for six months. It's not a long-term solution. And then even if it were a long-term solution, if the outcomes are based on um, real-time data analytics that are right. maybe tied to internet of bodies or wearable tech or some sort of blockchain health record, um, essentially that means that in order to get access to your basic needs, you need to be under surveillance your whole life. Right, right. You know, and so like essentially we say, well, to justify our investment, we need to know 
where you are all the time, yeah. you know, and you need to be behaving all the time, according to our understanding of what good, a good global citizen is. And that's, I think that that comes back to, it's not just managing outcomes for the individual, but like the way they're talking about, you know, the Klaus Schwab, the Davos, the WEF crowd about what they're planning, right? <laughs> like right. literally they're planning a world that is totally inhumane, robotic, mechanized, austerity like it's a pretty grim thing even for people who are relatively well situated and adjusted to imagine navigating right i can't imagine like all of a sudden you have someone with like multiple traumas and navigating like you know pre you know incarceration or other things and then you're gonna say well those people are gonna have like how do you even have a good outcome like i'm not trying to be downer but i'm like we actually have to come to grips with the society like the thing that they are planning the society 5.0 cyborg avatar capitalism like <laughs> i mean literally that's what this yeah. you know japan is saying like by 2050 we're so, we're all in on cyborg avatar capitalism and meanwhile we're gonna make sure everybody's gritty and resilient for this right, like it right. doesn't sound like a fun ride and so what I'm trying to say is like, as a middle-class woman, like who's at the moment, okay, is like, I can see this as a horror. If if we're going, we can't go at it individually. We have to go at it as a society. Like we actually have to like take on the Bezos, Palantir, you know, Omidyar, um, Bloomberg, Soros program, Vatican. I mean, in, in Philadelphia, the housing people, the, this housing papers, this housing is run through the Catholic church. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Catholic uh, home. And they, they call her the, the Mary Scullion, the nun with the knife. Like that's what's like, sh- and now we've got the Vatican and, and inclusive capitalism, right? So we have to kind of come to terms. I think it's not, if we just every tweak each individual person, we're never gonna get actually at the scope of the problem. You know, and one of the one of the big challenges I, I I've found in my own personal life is is having these conversations with with friends and family, because they they know my background and the research I've already been doing. And right now in this moment, um, we are basically really the barriers to having these these constructive conversations to move forward are are our concerns um, is more difficult now than ever because. Um, the, the, the great reset, this idea that, that now is getting a lot of attention is probably why you were so hard to, 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 you know, to get on a podcast because you were everywhere. Your ideas are, are at this moment being seen as, as part of this larger context that they've been working on for decades, for, for decades. I mean, this has been work that's been like going into it. This isn't just all of a sudden a pandemic happened and, and there was stuff on the shelf they're rolling out. This has been actively worked on for, for many, many years, but it's, more difficult now than ever to even have these conversations because just talking about the great reset can get you branded that pejorative, the conspiracy theorist. And I don't know if you saw Naomi Klein recently on the intercept, um, get kind of huffy protecting her disaster capitalism brand, but, but it's like Naomi Klein was, was kind of, kind of like, well, you know, disaster capitalism is, is my thing. And this great reset, you know, and the world economic forum, they've been, they've been doing this. It's, it's not a conspiracy. No one's, no one's like discovering this stuff. It's been out in the open. And, and it's almost like, one her students to look at it when I talk to her. <laughs> what, I mean, what what is that? I, I, I mean, is this factionalism that that, that continues to sort of plague um, oh, potential on allies it. on the left, or what is that? Been on it, like she and her husband, they have a whole video about like you know when we let everyone out of prison and they go to their affordable housing pods, and after the tsunami and the locusts is coronavirus twenty twenty three. Like, right? They're part of this, and and this is what I struggle with in Philadelphia is that like. Yeah. 
you know, we have a pretty active, like progressive left mixed bag anarchist, you know, like yeah, yeah. community, like it's, it's, it's fragmented all over the place and I'm late to this game. So I don't really belong anywhere, but I was like bumping <laughs> around. Cause I was, you know, you know, on the sort of edge of some of the stuff around the Occupy ICE movement and different things. And I'm, yeah. you know, learning and I'm trying to connect with people and I'm like, you know, trying to tell them about blockchain identity. And I'm like, are you talking blockchain socialism? Is that what, <laughs> like the DSA, I'm like, are you doing blockchain? Like, cause I'm just trying to get some clarity. Cause I don't think that sounds like a good idea. Right. And I, I think what I, I hit up against was that many on the left are like hyper pseudo intellectual about things and very snobby yeah. about all the wrong stuff, but they're yeah. not intellectually curious. And so no one would ever engage with me on that. But I think to a certain extent, the left is not actually like ant like the whole planned economy idea, a techno technocratic planned industrialized thing is appealing in what? some sense. Like that crazy, you know, like so yeah, yeah. um and I the you know where I'm at now is that I feel very strongly that it's about looking more towards um like an indigenous land-based relational yeah. centered that is something that needs to like undercut this enlightenment sort of scientism statism formula that we have. Right. Um, so I, you know, there are people who say like, oh, you're not, you know, you're not left enough. You're not Marxist enough. Or I'm like, I don't think whatever <laughs> we're building, we have to build it new. And I would rather build on something that is a, is a non-Western, I'm not trying to claim yeah. it. I'm not saying that I know all of those things in my heart. I think looking at what's going on in India, looking at these other resistance movements, that's where, that's the kind of resistance that's needed. Yeah, you know, locally, Missoula is a progressive bubble in a, in a predominantly conservative state. And when it comes to the housing piece, you know, we have a, a valley encircled by mountains. And so when it comes to supply and demand of just actual land to build on, you know, we have significant constraints. But we also have this sort of boutique progressive community that's, you know, bringing in people from the failed uh, Western states. Um, and they come in and they want to pass open space bonds because we want to make sure to have those nice amenities for people coming into our communities. And, oh, yeah, that might make it more unaffordable to live here. But, you know, we want to, to go on hikes and, and walk around. Meanwhile, we've been paying a, a Florida consulting firm to do the master planning for our downtown core. And, and they always want to look at density, right? Density because, well, we just have to, you know, think about sustainability. And um, of course, density also maximizes profit for the developers. And it, I call it the sardine can master plan because the idea is just packing in people as dense as you can. And, and when, this, when this plan actually starts happening in the backyards of people that don't want the dense apartment complex and, and all the stuff that, that's kind of coming along with it, then they start getting active. But, but people don't seem to get active until it's actually knocking on their back door. And with a lot of the stuff that you're raising awareness about, when it's knocking on our, on our back door, it's, it's, it's going to be too late. Um, and, and one of the things with, with what's happening with these bigger picture kind of fourth industrial revolution, um, the grand or the, the fourth turning, some of these terms that are, that are, that are happening in terms of, um, you know, technology emerging with, with the human species and a potential disruption of the labor force, unlike what we saw in the eighties with globalization. I mean, all of these dynamics seem to be hitting this perfect storm of, now the pandemic gives this 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 justification to really really roll things out, and I think as I've, I've followed you on Twitter, um, I sense a, a impatience from from you and and from people from, from really 
absolutely. Be- be- because I think I heard you say what, what, what you thought was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, things are happening so much faster now that the sense of urgency has increased for anyone that's paying attention to these dynamics. The sense of urgency is just as, as palpable. Well, and there's lack of public process too, because you right. can't even get in the meetings and it's like a state of exception. Yeah. So, you know, um, you know, I, I was connected with folks who are trying to grapple with the um, possible vaccine mandates in the state of New York. And they were like, well, do we get a lobbyist? Like, do we have to go? We should, maybe we should, have, you know, and they're like, you can't go to the Capitol. <laughs> right, right. You can't go. Like, how do you get a Zoom call? Like, how do you lobby? You can't physically be there. Yeah. So everything is, the, all of these public discussions are just happening you don't even know where they're happening because unless you get the zoom link or whatever, and then they can just cut you off, you know, you, you're not, you don't, there is no public process. And, 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 and so much, so much of what you, what you first started looking at was because you were present at the meetings. I mean, I love when you said on, on uh, the, the higher side chat that you were going to these late summer meetings when the school board was setting the meetings and you started realizing the meetings are set at the end of summer because they don't want anyone showing up and, and yeah. taking notes and paying attention to the, the private sector coming in with their pilot program. Um, and another thing I wanted to mention when you say public private, that is a huge red flag for me. I, I mean, I, I hear the, the term fascism thrown out a lot. Um, I, I think of public-private as being this corporatism that Mussolini was talking about. You want to talk about fascism, you know, you have that public-private partnership being a very big red flag from my perspective. And, and in Missoula, when it comes to the University of Montana, we're heavily investing in the in the um, biomedical industry. And so we have a um, biosecurity level four lab um, in the Bitterroot. Um, and we have Seth Bodner as our university president. So he comes from GE transportation. Um, he's the first president to not have a doctorate. Um, his wife just happened to be in telemedicine before all this stuff happened. Okay. And his wife just happened to be friends with, I think it's Jim Messina, the data analytics guy that helped Obama get elected in 2012 and then jumped over the pond um, to help Brexit get, get going, you know? And so Missoula, when I say Missoula is a microcosm and this zoom town concept is something to really look at in terms of locally what's happening here, we are this, you know, valley of 70, 80,000 people, a hundred thousand in the County, but, the dynamics are so interesting in how they are playing out in this liberal uh, utopia uh, where we can we can buy a motel under this COVID emergency funds for a congregate shelter. Um, and, and FEMA is going to pay everyone back 75%. And so it's amazing to watch the hands in the COVID money pot right now. Um, I mean, we have, a, we have a Democratic state senator who her law firm got $25,000 in small business retention money and her cannabis testing facility also got $25,000 because um, in Montana, the cannabis industry is, is getting going um, after some, uh, some votes at the state level. And, and so it's just, it's really interesting to, to have uh, listened to, to your, your presentations well, the in a couple different forums. Too, they're like these anchor institutions. Right. And, you know, and a lot of it, I don't know about, there, but like defense contracting, you know, right. high tech, you know, R and D and, you know, the, the biotech and the nanotech and it's, it's intense. And, and, you know, I, I remember like there was a, um, I'm kind of making my way through the national nanotechnology initiative, um, yeah. some of the videos, and there was someone who, who sent me the links and, you know, I'm really trying to get more up to speed and it's a tough, you know, it's a steep learning curve, but I kept I, I thinking, bet. you know, 
this has been going for 20 years and no one's talking about it. Where's the yeah. environmental movement on this? They're talking about nanotech and water purification, you right. know, nanotech and agriculture. What are we talking about putting in the soil? We don't even know what the heck that stuff is, like even after 20 years, but they haven't really got, done any like long-term testing. And what if we're just, you know, it's the new asbestos or it's the new, you know, um, you know, Teflon or it's the, this new, and, and now the biotech industries are just remaking the world as these sort of electrically engineered mechanical systems that are just displacing all of the natural, natural humans, nature. Um, the replacement know, of natural systems is so disturbing. And it's like, do we need to bring back the trope of the mad scientist? I, this, this, it is, this, they're this, mad scientists. <laughs> it, 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 I hate to depict people as cult-like believers in something, but... <laughs> that said, there, there, there's this belief right now in scientism that, that just seems to be so unquestioning. And it, it, it's so disturbing because it plays out in family, family units. I, I had to have really explicit conversations that my kids are not going to get vaccinated with my, my own parents, you know, and my mom's been listening to the podcast, you know, her and maybe 10 other people right at this point. But, you know, um, those conversations, are you having some of those similar conversations with, with basically, you know, here are my red lines. These are things I'm willing to do. These are things I'm not willing to do. Um, I mean, how real are some of those conversations for you, I guess, in, in, in your circles? Um, are those happening? It's small. I mean, it's, yeah. it is hard. I mean, I would say my, my immediate family doesn't, isn't quite sold on, my understanding of this, or I don't, I think it's just hard to accept yeah, the, yeah. The, the scope, right? Because my scope is so broad yeah. um, about, you know, who wants to imagine that, that someone's out there planning to turn you into a cyborg avatar <laughs> put you in a video game? Like, <laughs> I don't, you know, if you'd asked me 10 months ago, I would not be thinking that that, that, that would be anything. I, you know, I thought talking about Palantir and housing impact bonds was scary <laughs> enough. You know, I was not up to speed on like the blood brain barrier and nanorobotics for right. sure. Um, so, you know, but like, I have elderly parents and I had to tell yeah. my mom, I'm like, you know, who are at a distance. And I said, you know, I'm not getting this injection. I'm not getting no. on this injection protocol and that may impact my ability to participate in your care. Yeah. As crazy as that sounds, but like if someday that you can't get into the hospital without, yeah. you know, a proper passport and, you know, but I'm not going to join the cyborg program. I mean, I'm just not. Yeah. So, you know, um, and those are things that I've had conversations about, you know, if, if I can't go on an airplane, I'm okay with that. If I can't go to a concert, I'm okay with that. You know, there are plenty of things I'm willing to accept as, as things I'm not able to do in this new normal. And, you know, frankly, the old normal wasn't all that great. And, and this really is an opportunity, I think, um, in terms of the chessboard being, you know, thrown on the ground and all the chess pieces on the, on the floor. And, and how do we not build back better, not their slogans, but, you know, how do we really look at our immediate environment. And, and one of the, the trends that I think is worth supporting is decentralization. Anything that supports decentralization, you know, local networks, local communities, real sustainability, not the but sustainability. Not, not that kind. Well, That's so, me anyway. Right, right. I'm the not blockchain person for me. Do you get a sense that that decentralization concept is very integrated with um, blockchain as a technology? Interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, I think it's somewhat unfolding at the moment, but right. I think, um, you know, I've kind of drawn a line in terms of my connections because I'm not here to try to 
pull back the blockchain crypto libertarians like into my mindset. That's not yeah. because my, my frame is that those technologies are not sustainable. They let lean to technocracy and they're not liberation and like pretty much the deep state invented that stuff, right? Like we all right. know that didn't show up, right. you know, conveniently so the central banking system could take it over 10 years later. It didn't, that didn't just happen that way. So, <laughs> um, you know, people who would like to build their society in a blockchain format, that's nothing that I think is an appropriate response. And like, you know, I'm not, I can't tell them how to think, but for me, that's not how I would think. So, so what but about I think what about agorism? There are links to like some of the new age, mm -hmm. like, and this is where they are, like every community is sort of splitting, you know, yeah. right. But that, <clears throat> you know, I think within alternative circles, there are, you know, the higher consciousness and the, yep. the leaning towards the hive mind and, and global cooperation, the sort of new agey version of the sustainable development goals, like the yeah. sort of love and light version. Um, but like tech is great that can help us do all these wonderful things. Yeah. Um, and so I do think that there is that piece, not everybody, but I think there's definitely a tendency and entities that are hijacking that. Well, and agorism is something that just seems to be more, I mean, you might have to create online networks to, to start connecting and organizing people, but the idea of just like trading and bartering and, and getting a sense of um, the gray economy and, and ways in which you can build more sustainable networks um, with the idea that that there are going to be disruptions of food. I mean, I've also been listening to Ice Age Farmer yeah. and some of his presentations and, you Can know. Can you talk about the nanotech in agriculture? That's you what know, I, I feel like yeah. trying to get on that. He, he's just someone I'm, I'm actually now re recently kind of getting more in, involved in his, his research. Um, but the food stuff is really obviously worrying because one of the easiest ways of controlling any population is you control the, the food. And, um, you know, the ideas that are out there of, of some of the things that might be happening to create food scarcity where there's not actually food scarcity. Um, I mean, population control is something that the, the, the people at the top, the eugenicists that, that have had this, this idea for a long time, I mean, they, they've never given up this, this idea of controlling populations, you know, controlling reproduction, controlling, controlling life itself. And, and the stuff with the nanotech, um, you know, I'm, I'm recently getting back into more of a spiritual practice myself. I stopped drinking alcohol seven months ago because I was self-medicating and, and, you know, just really wallowing in my own pity and, and, and so now that I've had a little bit of clarity, I think there is a spiritual awakening. I'm, I'm definitely one of those that, that thinks that there is something happening. Um, not only that there's something happening, but they know that there's something happening and are trying to get ahead of it and sort of cap this raise, raising of consciousness because too many people are starting to pay attention and really see, see the game uh, that's yeah. being played. Um, and, and not wanting to go down that route. You know, when, when you speak about gamification, I think back to, you know, I'm 42 years old. So um, those first person shooter games were starting to get popular around, you know, my, my peer group. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad worked for Sprint. I was growing up in Kansas City and he had a couple of computers at the, at the home front. And so we had this first person shooter game tied to three computers. So I had three, you know, people that could play at the same time. My friends were so into this game. They literally broke into my house when I was at work in order to, to play this game. And as they, they started playing Grand Theft Auto, I remember the moment I, I realized how disturbing um, behavior can actually be changed. 
I, I was talking to friends that played Grand Theft Auto and asked them how often they they thought about just you know driving and shooting you know if they could do that in real life they're like oh yeah that pop that thought pops in your head after you've been playing this game too frequently and I'm like really really and and the ethos of the game if you're not familiar um, and I, I might be inaccurate I might have to look into this but um, when you when you engage in intercourse with a prostitute in this game. Um, you have to pay the prostitute money, right? But if you shoot the prostitute afterwards, you get the money back. And so um, the ethos of that game, and, and I think engaging in that intercourse, you get energy points or something. Um, and, but to maximize that, once you, once you eliminate that prostitute, the money returns to you. And so I, my oldest kid is 12 years old and we're, we're in this constant battle with screen time with, with our kids. And, and that really is where it, it comes home for, for me and my wife is, you know, Screen time was already something we saw as a bad thing. Impulse control with the kids is already a struggle. You know, I don't want a bunch of dopamine addicts already, you know, but that seems to be this inescapable reality that we're stuck in now. Um, and my wife, you know, part of that conversation about, about the vaccine is, is very tough, but part of it is, is from the exhaustion of remote learning and what people are going through, just trying to get their kids up to speed with all the educational constraints it's, it's it's if you don't I can't have even, children, like, it's so hard for me to even work as much I mean and I'm only like I'm I mean I do this other stuff the other part of my time but I'm working part-time and it's exhausting you know, to do yeah. this I mean it's just it's taxing and dispiriting yeah um so what are you doing for self-care that's a that's a great a great segue into it because because that is so <laughs> important um self-care do you take walks do you have a, um, pets do you listen to music what what are you doing to take care of yourself I just drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> coffee's been a um, coffee's been a go-to for me too. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done as much lately. I mean, when I was this summer, I was able to since I I work at a botanic garden, so I was oh, able excellent. to like get out once or twice a week and actually be doing some physical work there, which was yeah. great. Um, and and that hasn't been the case the last few months. But um, like we had a couple get-togethers with soup. I have a wood stove, <laughs> and so I'm just like I'm like I'm, yeah. I don't want to be too stressed about entertaining. But I'm like I can make soup, and I can we I can order some challah from the farm box, and we'll hang out. And so we've done that a couple times with about a dozen people, and that's been um, like people are just really glad to have some other people to be with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's that's been nice. Um, are you are you getting contacted a lot? Because like I say, I mean, your your name really is popping up all over the place. And so, are you doing a lot of appearances and podcasts and and really you know working to get the word out on on your research? I mean, I don't. The last couple of months has been maybe two or three a week. Oh, okay. So okay. you know, I mean, that's to me that seems like a lot, but <laughs> I mean. You know, now it seems like people are catching up, right? Yes. Like when I first started trying to talk about this stuff this summer, like when Jason came out and did that first series, yeah. very few people were talking about the Great Reset or the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Like that was, you know, that was in May. And yeah. so that wasn't. And so now it's kind of standard that people are understanding that part, but they're not quite getting, you know, and now they're trying to understand the biometric passports. So, mm -hmm. you know, that piece is coming together. But I will say, you know, it's a challenge. The, the sustainable development goals, like that's going to be the hiccup. That'll be very interesting to see because yeah. I just noticed today, like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on Children's Health Defense sort of put mm -hmm. on his Facebook, like, oh, yay, like the Paris, Paris Climate you know, Accord, we're going back on Biden, we're all great with this green stuff. And, yeah. you know, it's going to be interesting to see because many people are not realizing that the sustainable development goals 
are really channeling this biosecurity state, like yeah. this financialization of, of human life and um, nature. Mm-hmm. And that it's a, it's a faux green, like the whole Greta thing is a faux, it's a fake corporatist version. It's not actually going to heal the planet. It's just about extracting, throwing more tech throw at the, at the problems, extracting more profit for the tech companies and the finance companies and just harming the planet even more. And, and people aren't there yet, but it's, yeah. I think some people are starting to get it because it turns out like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a partner in Vantage Point Capital, which is one of the largest green, you know, VC firms, right? And I've, I've said that like last month, I said, you know, he's going to have to make a choice because ultimately goal three is health and it's telemedicine and it's going to be vaccines and it's going to be all this stuff. So he's going to have a hard time playing both sides on, am I the VC partner? Like, going in for sustainable um, development tech yeah. or, or am I the advocate around um, health sovereignty and and yeah. and people are going to start like you're, there's not going to be room to fence it anymore you have to pick yeah it's so interesting and other trends that that might be leading in in similar directions with when it comes to housing that the tiny home trend oh. is is going to it seems like it's going to be I know with our zoning um, our big zoning issues around the affordable housing, crisis in, in Missoula, um, ADUs, additional dwelling units or granny shacks are part of that conversation because it was a big controversy years ago. Um, people didn't want infill. They, they were against those, those types of developments. But um, as the aging population creates more challenges and, and the housing crisis kind of gets worse, I see the, the tiny home movement being a part of that. Zoning changes. Um, mm-hmm. the, the zoning thing is, is one of those kind of nuanced things that are hard to get into. But like so much of this stuff, if you're not paying attention to those detailed ways that infrastructure develops around these, these trends, um, then you're not going to realize it until it really is the build in your backyard um, or even taking away your land through eminent domain because now they're, they're wanting to you know, change how we are, are living. But um, when it comes to the housing trends, I'm trying to look and, and when it comes to the, the housing first failure and some of these other tools, um, one of the tools they, they talk about renewed focus on racial disparities. And, you know, one of the, one of the things Missoula is predominantly white, you know, we're like 92% uh, white. We have a native American population that's disproportionately represented within the criminal justice system, but it's been interesting. Um, as I have myself looked at the virtue signaling tendencies of the local political establishments, when it comes to these racial power dynamics, but at the same time, in the, in the homeless shelter where I used to work, there was a black man who was killed and there seems to be a cover-up going on and it seems to be tied in to drug abuse, to meth trafficking, to potentially something called Project Safe Neighborhoods. Is that something that you're familiar with, Project Safe Neighborhoods? I'm not. Is that a federal project? Yeah, so, so is um, this, is, this is kind of something to maybe put, uh, put on your back burner to kind of yeah. think about. Project Safe, Safe Neighborhoods was a federal initiative uh, initially created by Ashcroft back in like 2001. So John Ashcroft, um, the guy that didn't like to see the boobies on the statue, um, paid money to, to cover those with a curtain. Um, he developed this Project Safe Neighborhood initiative, and then it was revived, I think, in 2018 under uh, Jeff Sessions. And so um, what Project Safe Neighborhoods is will be funding, and it's It's kind of like maybe the fusion centers under the Obama administration. So um, funding in in order to to continue integrating federal, state, and local 
of authorities when it comes to going after the scourge of, of drug abuse. And out here, it's, it's meth, you know, you, out in your neck of the woods, it's, it's the opioid crisis. Um, but, but one of the interesting things is the way that United Way is tied into this. United Way- They're uh, all over all this. Well, in, in, the, in the local network, uh, Susan Haypatrick is the current executive director of the United Way. Um, and, and she's one person in the conversations I'm having with people off the record, she's one person you don't cross because you know, the, the intimidation, the retaliation is, is potential there. Um, and I emailed her because I used to be a darling of, of this, this group of folks as I was the homeless outreach coordinator of the Pavarello mm -hmm. Center. And I was doing all this work to try and make the streets safe for tourists to spend money in the downtown businesses. And so I reached out to her via email about this funding that was coming and she wasn't aware of it at the time, but um, a couple months later, it was around $248,000 through Project Safe Neighborhoods for, for meth prevention. And then um, there's another, uh, the meth project is sort of ramping up again after being dormant for years. And so it seems like there, there's some federal money starting to move uh, around prevention and treatment and also prosecution. Um, I think that's going to be a, a part of it, but I'm really interested in the housing criminal justice intersection um, and the idea of, of moving basically the idea of prison to expanding it out, like the idea right. of the prison. It's an open air prison. Open air I mean, prison, probation yeah. and parole for, for all of us, you know, sort of. Yeah, every, everybody on an ankle, yeah, an implantable biosensor. I mean, yeah. that's, yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, so I, I had a situation, um, it was like a year ago, May. Mm -hmm. So um, like I had mentioned that our housing authority, uh, the Philadelphia Housing Authority is a central player in all of this. And yes, they yes. You have like a 10 year waiting list for affordable housing, yep, right? Yep, like yep. You're just not gonna get it. And meanwhile, we have like, they've taken down the tall towers. They didn't replace the same level of housing that was lost. Um, when that happened, the, the big high rises that, that they have their own independent police force Oh, so then the police force essentially had, because it was scattered site housing, right. they had free range over most of North Philadelphia, predominantly, you know, black area of the city, you know, around. So they were no longer really confined to a geographic location. They mm -hmm. could sort of act with impunity as a secondary and even more corrupt police force, um, which is pretty <laughs> um, intense, right? I didn't even yeah. really, like, unless you're in those communities, you don't even know. And then I have a, my, my friend who's an activist in the space, her name is Jennifer Benich. She finally lobbied them so that the, the the cars were identified as housing authority cars. Right. Like the right. roll cars. Because you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, it's really intense. And so um, the, a lot of the housing, they let go, the housing authority let go to rot, like the individual homes that yep. were vouchers. And then they would eventually say, oh, this isn't uninhabitable. And then they would, they would put it out to auction and then it would flip it to a developer. Mm -hmm. And so this whole area that was um, essentially redlined and abandoned by the city now was flipping through the affordable housing and then becoming privatized and right. gentrified. Right. And our housing authority put like a $45 million, like mid-site, like an office building in the middle of a row, a two-story row house neighborhood. <laughs> like, I mean, it just was the most bizarre thing that you'd ever seen. And um, my friend, her husband was um, hurt by one of these police officers and she started attending the meetings and paying attention to what was going on in these housing authority meetings. And then eventually her house was shortly thereafter firebombed. Someone threw an incendiary wow. device in her window when she was home with her kids. Oh, wow. So she, 
actually occupied the housing authority, the brand new housing authority building outside on the sidewalk with tents with another um, young man who had aged out of the foster care system. And they occupied um, th that housing authority building for like five or six months, like wow. starting in the late winter of 2019, like into the well into the summer. Wow. And, um, you know, I, I was out there early on with that, like occasionally I, I, I spent just a couple nights out there, but I would bring food, you know, I'd bring food out. And one, one day I went out and I was, um, we have all of these open empty lots where they've demolished the houses and then put up low fences to keep dumping out. Right. And the low fences are like three feet high for zoning. Like if it's a street frontage, you can only have a three foot high fence. So the day I came, it was raining sideways and I needed to come get a pot so I could like make another batch of food. And I just showed up as the housing authority was putting these eight foot high metal barricades around this open lot. Mm -hmm. And, and Jen and Fredo had been there like protesting that day with their like little picnic canopy tent and some poster boards and saying like, you can't do this. The kids play here. And why are you doing this? And no one could understand because they weren't even putting in footings for the, the they were just panels of chain link lashed to the existing fence. Mm -hmm. And so I show up as like the last panel is going in and, and like, I'm just like pushing. I'm like, where's your variance? <laughs> like, I know that this isn't a code. Like you have a variance, you can't have a fence. Like what's yeah. going on? Yeah. And there became like a pushing thing. And then eventually like I, uh, someone stopped in the road. This is during rush hour, raining sideways. And I ran out, she was filming it to tell her what was happening. And I turned around and a guy was choking Fredo like on the neck with the Eric Garner chokehold, like on the ground. My goodness. And he had taken off his uniform. Like you couldn't tell he was a housing authority cop, but he wasn't out of uniform. He took his shirt off and so right. he was just an undershirt. And I tried to like pull him, again, it hit the guy, but I was just like, you're just shocked. You're like trying to separate. And then eventually we were both arrested. So I was like on five misdemeanor counts of in the Philly roundhouse, which is a pretty awful place to be. If you actually look it up, the yeah. Philadelphia jails. But in doing that, I could see the inside, right? Mm -hmm. Like I could see how this process worked. I could see that the people that were in my cell, it was like the end of a month. It was like a woman who someone threw a book bag of pot at her on the subway and right. they arrested her. Like there was another woman who was like broke, like went into a church to get out of the cold and the church called the police on her. You know, yep. there was another woman who had like had an outstanding traffic ticket from 30 years ago. Right. Like it's like, these were not dangerous, scary people. Like these were people just like, who were pulled in the system to be processed because that's how this this machine works. Right. And and so ultimately in the end, they were like, well, we'll put you in this diversion court, right? Like just don't do anything for six months and we'll just scrub your record. But like I was brutal, like they threw me on the sidewalk. The police yeah. threw me on the, from the back, like just boom, as I was filming, because I filmed the guy who who had done it, you know, with his tattoos and everything. I'm like, why are you a police? What's your badge? What is going on here? Yeah, and then yeah. yeah, so they had to take me out. So um, nobody wanted to represent me. Eventually, like it, it sort of worked itself out, but I could see how this diversion court was going to happen. I could yep. see that what was going to happen is that they would continue to criminalize poverty. Like that wasn't my situation, but to put people in circumstances that were unnavigable, like yep. life, life ways, make them bring them up on misdemeanor or whatever charges and then divert them into these programs. Yep. And then, and through, um, you know, these new innovative surveillance technologies, whether that's your Obama phone or in a QR code, you know, check in your work placement, check in with your social worker, check in with all the, you know, now it's not even there, even in person, you just check in on the, you know, on the phone. Right. Um, 
that's going to be the level of state control. And so that's what I was really trying to talk about. Like in China, there's a model um, where they're tracking people on parole on blockchain and tying it to their social credit score. So that model already exists. And this division is part of IEEE, I3Es, like International Electrical and Electrical Engineering Association. It's it's like the electrical engineers, but it's based in New York. Like, so they're setting this stuff up. It's not really that China is separate from the US. They're just all using it as a test bed. Right. And so, you know, I was trying to talk to the abolition communities and the prison reform communities because the Mark MacArthur Foundation is behind this too, the justice reform. But they're doing the same bad things to the schools. And I'm like, this, this thing that's planned is not what you think. Yeah. It actually just said it's morphing and, and clearly, you know, in, in some ways, like it's, it's, it's terrible to be in a physical prison, but if they can expand their capture to um, you in the world, right? right, then everybody in your community is under surveillance if you're under surveillance, right? Like if, you, yeah. if you're being watched on a tablet or something, it's your family, it's your kids, it's your neighbors, it's your aunt, like their level of control expands exponentially if you know, a certain 20% of the population is under state control all the time and tied to impact deals. Yeah. And, and, and the, the problems are allowed to sort of fester because, you know, I know in the, in the Montana state trying to get someone uh, help for their addictions, we would, we used to joke, well, you know, you need help once you get arrested, you get arrested, then you get into the system because there doesn't seem to be any help for you until you get to that point. So it's sort of like, keep that, that problem festering, keep it worsening until it becomes a crisis, you know, and then that person gets caught up in the system. And then it's so hard to get out once you're on probation or parole, um, you're having to pay for your own drug tests, you're having to pay for your own monitoring. Um, and then one of the things that I'm trying to understand, that's why I brought up Project Safe Neighborhoods and sort of the criminal justice system and how it interfaces with poverty and trauma. One of the things that, that I'm having a hard time understanding is the lack of prosecution. This, 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 I don't know if it's a trend or a pattern or if it's just maybe something more specific to our local municipality, but um, the, the murder that I'm looking into of a homeless man at the shelter was not prosecuted, even though they caught the individual um, within 24 hours, he was, he was arrested on a felony assault charge and then released within 24 hours. And, and around the same time, there was a stabbing murder. All right. So two young men go into a bathroom for a drug deal. Uh, one person stabs the other guy because, you know, they didn't have the, the right amount of drugs. And um, the county attorney also did not prosecute in that situation. So in both of these situations of violence where, where there's a dead body, um, the county attorney's office is looking at that as a justifiable use of force in self-defense. And, and it, it's sort of inexplicable, but there seems to be a um, county attorney trend across the country of not prosecuting crimes, some crimes. And I don't know if it's, huh. if it's, if well, it's, you know, for a, crime stats. It, it has bought a lot of the district attorneys. Yes. And I've looked into so, that. I mean, he literally has bought them. I mean, I, I keep saying, I'm like, Soros isn't buying activists, he's buying district attorneys and economists, you know, that's, um, you know, I don't know about the severity, like my sense right. is, is, like in Philadelphia, they were definitely there to push pay for success finance and diversion stuff. But yeah. I mean, it could be that the sense of terror or like, they don't really care if people die. Like, I mean, I, I think that maybe, And also having just a full-on breakdown of social, the social structure. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I think ultimately maybe if some of this happens, they'll say, well, look, 
if we impose more artificial intelligence policing, more surveillance, more systems, right. like maybe that will be the answer. Like, we'll just, if we, we just had some sort of, you know, although I guess it wouldn't have stopped a murder in a bathroom if you had a camera in there, but um, yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly on the severity. I know that like on the low level ones in the diversion courts, that's definitely something that the district attorneys are about. And again, I'm not for trying to push people into incarceration, like anything right. but, because clearly, you know, the model of the prison industrial complex is so large because it was, it was set up that way in the drug wars to manage excess labor in the last round of globalization. Yeah, yeah. Like that was, it's a labor management, but with the fourth industrial revolution, as I've said before, they can't build enough prisons to hold the number of people who will be displaced by the robots and the avatars and the AI. They And they don't want to because it's not cost-effective. It's more right. cost-effective for them to throw up a satellite constellation fence around the world and put everybody in a bio, with a biosensor and control them that way. And so that's the model. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. Um, you know, the 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 chaos of what's happening on the streets, I think, is is in some ways sort of allowed to 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 worsen because the solutions are coming in the ways that you're you're describing. Um, you know, one of the things I used to not joke about, but there's a certain kind of gallows humor when it comes to frontline workers. Um, you know, whether it's a first responder or someone working working at the shelter. But I used to joke that that folks on the streets um, are very powerful. Actually, they're very powerful. Um, because once you get to a point of not having anything left that the state can take from you, um, you become more of a problem in the eyes of the state because then it's just a cost. If you're in jail, it's 130 bucks a night to feed you. Um, and, and partly this comes from my work on the streets, you know, back then and the sense of, of anarchy that was sort of developing the idea of the, the clients I was working with, you know, they'd say, well, go ahead, call the cops. What are they going to do? They're not going to throw us in jail. They don't want to take us to the ER. You know, they'd rather just let us kind of, you know, fight amongst each other. And, and so there was this sense of anarchy developing. I mean, I, I left the job because I was burnt out and had, you know, probably secondary trauma from working with people in crisis. But, um, and so that, that was part of my lens. You know, I wanted to see the situation controlled in a more authoritarian, more authoritarian way. I mean, I started taking on a cop mentality. I really did. Um, because that was sort of how that PTSD works. You know, you get hyper, hyper aware, then you want to control things. And so, um, from that perspective, you know, I see how willing I think people are going to be for these types of solutions. If it's a, 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 techno a, a technology fix, you know, if it's a human pathway improvement program and a free phone, I just, I don't know if we're going to get enough people sort of aware of, of the, the long-term trends of where they're going to actually go because the, the present chaos is in such need of, of solutions. The triage can't continue happening the way it's happening. So um, those dynamics are partly what I'm thinking of. Um, but I also want to raise awareness because I fully believe that what you're describing is the plan. They've described this plan for us. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a written book. It's written. Yeah. I have it. I have the book. It's like, it's like, don't tell me. <laughs> I have this great book here. Sorry, I just want to show you. Get it. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, oh, it'll be backwards, I think. But th it's called uh, This Perfect Day. Oh, and it's Ira Levin. So this um, 
my my friend Michael, who's working in New York City, trying to get the contracts for the DNA, the COVID testing. He's yeah. great. He's a teacher. He's trying to fight fight back uh, the vaccine mandates for the teachers in person teaching. Excellent. But he was like, Allison, you need to read this book, This Perfect yeah. Day. It's by Ira Levin, and so it's interesting to me because it was written in 1970. So oh, it was wow. like the year, a couple years after Rosemary's Baby, which was in 1968, the movie, and my mom is Rosemary and I was born in 1968. Okay. So, so yeah, so I'm reading this book though, and essentially it lays out in 1970, a future that is very much linked to like the novel We by Yevgeny Zemyatin. Okay, okay. So this early technocracy, everybody's yeah. a number, everybody's engineered, um, but it's based on um, ongoing chemotherapeutic and computing treatments. Interesting. Like individuality has been wiped out. Like there's only four male names and four female names and everybody's very flat and everyone has to get these ongoing like gene therapy treatments with computerization. And there's like a giant computer underground yeah. called uni and it, and it, and it dictates all of the treatments to keep everybody just like medicated and going along with the program. Interesting. And, um, and it's 1970. I mean, the computer, like there weren't even like, I don't know if when personal computers started or ENIAC, but like early, this is 50 years ago. And so like, I think these folks have had this in mind for a very long time. Are, are you but I do think it's tenuous. And I will say too, like when you, you mentioned those folks, um, like, gosh, it's been probably two, a little over two years ago. Like my kids said, like, mom, you need to write this stuff with people. You need to, I don't know if you, that if I sent you like the link to my story, but I, I'm not a creative writer, but I wrote like a 25 page, I call it like a scenario. Cause I, 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 I feel really bad about dialogue and I need, I thought it needed to come from sort of a, a the black radical tradition, which is clearly not me, but um, so I laid it out and it's, it's called a uh, building sanctuary and it's okay. set in Queens in this library. Um, but like the resistance to this thing that was coming, mm -hmm. which essentially like it was, you know, it, it talks about the retail collapse of all the malls and that they turned them into warehouses with virtual reality warehouses. And yeah. that like all the people in addiction just like got put there. And there were sort of different tiers of comfort. Like some people just had mats and VR headsets, but like they were sort of mined for this data. And, um, but the, the people who led the resistance were the people who weren't even worth getting in the system. Interesting. And they, they were, I called them like the people under the bridge. They were like the, like the vets, the handicap, like they were not perceived of even being worthwhile pulling in. Mm -hmm. And so that, the, that was like this nascent, like resistance quality. And it wasn't until like, gosh, it was like three months later, they were doing a clean out of the, the um, heroin encampments under the L in, in Philly one day. And you know, I was there to sort of show solidarity because they didn't really have any good plans for where they were going to put people. They just needed, there was moving them right. and throwing all their stuff. And, and so I, I, I met up with some people there that day and it was like, my whole story was coming to life. Like it was wow. like happening. And, and there were like these two sisters in the story and we were standing there and like, you know, it's the middle of a school day and just craziness, police and people moving and everything. And these little girls came up and they're like, do you know where we can get some food? You know, and I'm like, you're just like my story. Like you're, it's like my story. And then it's just gone on from there. Like this is two years pre-COVID, but like it's. Okay, you're um, giving me chills. You're giving, you're giving me chills because, um, okay, you're, you're, you're freaking me out a little bit. Um, I, I started writing a fiction story about four or five years ago before I left the shelter. Um, and now there's elements that I wrote back then that seem to be coming true. Um, 
there was a tragedy I wrote about of a, a homeless guy getting his, his head bashed in essentially. And that happened in November um, in real life. And, and so um, the, the sense of artists and, and you know, I've, I've taken a lot from fiction, from stories, from pr- what I now kind of look at as predictive programming. And I continue looking at these narratives because it, it is all narrative. It, I mean, it really seems to come down to to narratives, to, to archetypes that we have in our unconscious that, that seem to be playing out in this world. And, and for types, I mean, it seems like you've tapped into something too, where, where you're trying to compose your thoughts because you know that you're tapping into something and then you start seeing things actually manifest in, in ways. I mean, are you also having like synchronicities or stuff like that happening that, that give you a, a sign that you're sort of on the right path that give you that reinforcement? Does, does that happen with? with so. Yeah. I mean, well, the thing about Philadelphia is that, you know, a lot of the, the research I do in finance is, yeah. you know, it's very macro, it's very global, you know, like, let me, I'll read, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, Codex Elementaris white paper on biotechnology and food or you know, like, and then I was like, okay, here's Penn and the nanotech center right here, you know, like, so there's these big things and then they land here, you know, they're, they're here. And then like, you know, the housing thing, oh yes. And my, then my friend's house gets firebombed. So it's, they're, they're the big things and then they're, they're situated, but Philadelphia, I think has a lot of energetic quality and, and, you know, ley lines and the Freemasonry and this history. And then you talk about narrative and that's, you know, where I sort of, um, you know, I'm trying to navigate because my perspective of understanding this as an extension of enslavement, an extension of indigenous genocide, that the answer isn't like more Ben Franklin, that the answer is like, you know, looking at, um, you know, indigenous practice as as an antidote to what this represents, that it's not a mistake that we're here, that this is the logical extension, which, you know, rubs up against a lot of the folks who are resisting, who are imagining that we're going to sort of preferably go back to a better like founding fathers model. And I'm like, no, it's the founding fathers that, that they're, they're the problem. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I have synchronicities. Like I, I have a couple like little videos on my YouTube channel. Like sometimes I just go out walking and um, yeah. you know, I went up to John Coltrane's house. John Coltrane's house is like it, the house he lived in while he was in Philadelphia, which is a relatively short time, but he, his family had the house for 50 years and it's falling apart. You know, it shows you the lack of respect of that quality of the history that, right. you know, they've been working very hard, but that no one wants to put money into sort of revolution, a revolutionary mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's not what's going to attract, you know, um, the, 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 these grants. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I wandered through that, that night and um, actually someone had contacted me who was, um, you know, and it is faith. I mean, I think there, and it's a cross spiritual practice. It's all kinds. And that's, I think, again, why the left falls down because they're very materialist and they're not, they kind of scoff at spiritualism, which is tough. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, you know, much. like, I didn't know that that was it, but like, that seems to be it. It's like belittling people who have a faith in something bigger. So, you know, someone called me up and they're like, can I pray for you? And I'm like, sure. Like, you don't seem too creepy. Like, I like nice Christian people. Like, if you're going to come on and be like heavy handed and mean, like, I'm not about yeah. that, but like, sure, I could always use some help. So I had meant, I said, you know, this morning I, I have to go to John Coltrane's house. Like, I just had this feeling and um, the person was, you know, anyway, he did, and it was getting dark. And by the time it was over and I'm like, well, I really have to go, but maybe I was supposed to wait for this phone call before I went. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not that 
tapped into all of his music, but like he had the spiritual awakening after like coming through an addiction Mm -hmm. and, you know, a love Supreme. And so when I made my way like up to the neighborhood, to his house, when I got to the door, which is still like kind of a work in progress that we put in a new door with a window, but they papered over it because no one was in there. And it was, um, like a poster from one of his, his productions. And it said, you know, a thought creates millions of vibrations and they all go back to God. And it was just like, so there are these things, right? Like, I mean, that there is something bigger and that's why I'm not willing to just give in to like the darkness of what's unfolding because I think it's tenuous. I think that there are many ways in which this whole system could fall apart if enough people awaken to it and could find, could reach out to each other from a loving place, like from a, a place of like solidarity and, 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 and love, because I, I can't believe that it's going to end this way. I guess that's what I'm, yeah. No, <laughs> and I, I think the people who most, who are coming from, um, these challenging places mm-hmm. have skill sets that are actually incredibly important. Yeah. And that's why as much as I'm here as like somebody who like connects dots or makes maps or whatever, like the skills I have are only go so far. I, I don't, I think I'm very much respectful of people who are able to navigate these systems in the real world. Like, mm. I think that there's power in that. Well, and there's pieces everywhere. There's, there's pieces all over the place. And I've really reconnected to a spiritual sense of um, a spiritual life as well. And I, I started going back to the church. I was raised Presbyterian, um, but I, I was really against organized religion for a long time. I, re, I did the, you know, cliche rebellion as a teenager of, you know, doing the drugs and saying F you listening to heavy metal. And, you know, it, it's been so weird to, to be on the other side of this with my kids now and to start sounding like a social conservative when, I, when I'm looking at the pop culture and, and what looked like a cult ritual is happening in my halftime show, the football game, and, and starting to say, well, I mean, I, I'm literally made fun of now by my wife, like I'm like Dana Carvey, you know, the church lady, like, is that Satan? <laughs> but it's too I know, but how about that crazy Hunger Games outfits or whatever? I didn't watch the night, but I'm seeing these pictures going, really like a big golden bird you know yeah lady lady gaga might be trolling those of us that, that think in that way but one of the <laughs> things that i've tried to explain to people when i start sounding like a crazy person talking about this stuff because you, you kind of are gaslit you know when you're when you're just having these conversations is that it doesn't matter necessarily what i believe and what you believe um if lots of if people with vast money and power have this belief system. If they, if they believe that what they're doing gives them power and it gives them an edge, then I'm going to take that seriously. And I'm going to take the symbolism seriously. I'm going to take uh, where they are drawing power from seriously. And I'm going to take the history of the occult and pop culture and, and really understand, I think, um, that is part of, that is, that is part of keeping- What's the narrative. It's programming. Exactly. Narrative programming. Um, and yeah. there, are, there are so many great books to, to, to connect to, to start um, waking up to stuff. Are, are you reading Jason Horsley at all? Are you familiar with his no. work? So Jason Horsley is amazing. He is from the UK and his grandfather was a uh, Fabian. Um, okay. So Fabian, oh yeah. Fabian's kind of established the, the labor party. And um, I mean, he has been so generous with talking about his own awakening and basically going through these occult cycles, going through UFO contacts sort of stuff. And, and, 
and really coming back to his own physical sense and, and doing like the, the personal healing to try and understand these parasitic elements within his own psyche. And he's done a lot of work on Hollywood because he was very obsessed with, with Hollywood culture and with um, Rosemary's Baby and Polanski and, <laughs> yeah. and, and all, all of this stuff. And, and the, the idea of film as, as sorcery, essentially, uh, filmmaking as sorcery, is, is, it sounds kind of ridiculous to say it in those terms, but the, the power of film, the power of the screen that we are now sort of confronted with, you know, all aspects of our life starting to move through these screens, you know, when you go back and look at some of those early narratives, I mean, the narrative control goes back a long ways. When, when someone like a science fiction writer like H.G. Wells writes a book called The Open Conspiracy and you have Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Milner and these guys mm -hmm. getting together, like figuring out, okay, you know, the UK primacy in, in the naval in the powers is starting to wane. We need to figure out how to control this financial game for the long term. And, and we are now seeing sort of the, the culmination of, of well over a century of planning by very powerful people and, and that's hard for people to understand that, that the planning goes that far back, that you can sort of have a continuity of thought that exists over generations. And that we are now at this point of saying, you know what, there are spiritual aspects to this that we have to take seriously. We can't just make fun of Christians uh, for believing in a magical Jesus. You know, there's, there is actual power in prayer. There's power in our consciousness. There's power in our intention. And we have to actually start taking accountability for our own power because we're just giving it to these, these, these entities. We're, we're giving it all away and, and we don't have to give it away. We don't have to consent to their, uh, their agenda and their plan. You know, we actually have a lot more power than we give ourselves credit for. And, and you've helped me see that in so many ways uh, as one person who has done this research and put so much effort into understanding these macro dynamics and at this point now, these are the ideas that are, are starting to really be taken up by a lot of people as one of the critical pieces to understanding the big picture. And so you're, the pieces that you have are so important. And I'm so glad that you've spent some time <laughs> with, with a little podcaster like me, just getting to start trying to, trying to you know, do, do my part to, to get this perspective out there. Um, you've been very generous allowing this time to, to be spent um, in, in conversation. And I just, I'm so happy that we've been able to-, to We all learn. I mean, that's the thing. I, I feel like I'm sort of a conduit. So I, people, you know, share information, we collaborate. Like now I have a better understanding. Remind me of the, the, the neighborhoods, the- so Project, yeah, Project Safe Neighborhoods as Project a- Project Safe Neighborhood, I need to look up that. As a um, you know, I can't remember if it's her name is Elizabeth Hinton. She wrote a book. She's out of Harvard, so I'm kind of like, uh, you know. But it was it was about like um, essentially like public housing, managing poverty, like great society and poverty management, okay. but like leading to the carceral state. Okay. And so actually, like if you understood the great society for what it actually was, mm -hmm. was that liberalism brought in surveillance culture, right. like into poverty management, and it actually it was really eye opening. So that's. Oh, I think that's useful to think about. I'm going to write that down. I think it's Elizabeth Hinton. Um, Something to look into. I know this is. Yeah, this yeah. It's, it's, it's a very good book. Um, and it's, it's not that old. Um, but the understanding that the, I mean, because again, I feel like I fell down the rabbit hole. Everything I thought was not exactly what I thought or like a variation, not the whole truth. Right. And um yeah, no, I, it's just, it's nice to connect because like I said, there, there's so many people who I thought it would, this would all be very clear to. Right. Um, 
and they, for whatever reason, they couldn't see it. They still can't. It's it's it's, it. it's a amount a matter of repetition, um, you know, and and hearing it from the right person. You know, my my own family has been conditioned to to not listen to me because I'm not I'm totally obnoxious among the people that are closest to me, right? You know, my, my mom is listening to the podcast because she's like, it's so nice, Travis, to listen to you. You know, talk to someone without being angry and yelling. You know? <laughs> and it's just unfortunate. I mean, that's the nature of of, of human beings. We, we yeah, yeah, I know. To show our worst selves to the people we love and feel the most comfortable around. So that's why my kids tend to show show me their their <laughs> worst side. But um, it, it's so important because I think the more people hear these ideas from from different different angles, different perspectives, um, different life experiences, uh, different parts of the country, different parts of the world, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. Um, I, I really think things are moving forward in a, in a positive way because people are waking up to being more accountable in their own lives. I, I'm hoping, at least that's what I'm yeah. thinking. And, and if they're not, then that fear is a very powerful thing to try and beat. Um, it, it keeps your vibration low. It, it, it keeps your immune system <laughs> compromised. And, and, and so just getting past that fear, I think, is something we can help people with. And if we can do that in small ways that don't get their defenses up, you know, I used to be good at, at I that. I sometimes just asking questions about this. Like, are we doing this? Is yeah. this what we're actually going to do? Should we be doing this? You know, just opening it up because so many things we just pursue, they advance it and then no one thinks to question it and say, why, you know, what, what, where could this go? Like if logically, if we don't actually stop and question it, my, my husband keeps saying it probably won't all happen, Allison, the stuff you're talking about. And I'm like, well, if those of us who know what the plan is, don't say anything, how will it not happen? You know, we have a responsibility to question. I'm not going to, especially, you know, and that's the thing. You know, people often say, well, what's your solution? Right. And, you know, my frame presently is that we need a solution that doesn't look like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that what I'm not that I wouldn't participate in it, but if I'm talking about that, we need a, a radical solution based in an understanding of the history and a collective practice towards something that is more equitable yeah. That's not something that like one middle-aged white lady comes up with. Like, and if I did, I would be like a really misguided and not following my own philosophy. Right. So right, right now I feel like my goal is to tell as many people as possible what I'm seeing mm-hmm. and then open it up. And, and, you know, and I've, I've actually had some more connections with, um, you know, people in, you know, like black liberation communities, other things to talk, like to, to have an audience, because I feel like those are the voices that people need to understand. And they will probably, it will resonate because they, they, they know how this machine runs. Right. So once they have this new information, um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm interested too, I will just say like, and if you keep your ears open around addiction, because I think that um, increasingly we are going to be looking at sort of a, you know, an MK ultra kind of medicalization, mental hygiene, um, medicalization of like a morphing of the drug war from an inc- a carceral section of the drug war into a prescribing both with psychedelics and potentially with cannabis and potentially on blockchain yeah. and like quality and prescriptions and 
creating new revenue streams around managing one's mental status yes in in a more um prescriptive way and um it worries me (laughs) i think there's going to be a new business model but it's not going to be a business model of like make your own choices about things it will it will it will be something else potentially combined with gamification or other things and that's it's a little scary. That's going, that's going to be a hard one to track because, again, you know, the, the war on drugs was such a awful, destructive, waste of money effort, you know, and, and, and stopping the war on drugs seems like a same thing to do. And the libertarian approach is like, okay, yeah, no, we just need to, to stop this. And, but what if that's already baked into the, the sort of future plans of, okay, yeah, we're going to stop the war on drugs and we're going to start legalizing drugs. But, but guess what? This is the, the way that we're going to be doing it. And we're always ahead one step um, to- I mean, I think blockchain will be a big piece of that. I think yeah. um, tracking quality, tracking money, transparency and accountability and and all of that i think it will be standardized it will start to become more and more standardized and the mental, um, the mental health piece is is really worrying because there's also the red flag laws that have been a part of the conversation uh for um the gun control that's a whole nother yeah. whole, whole nother issue but red flag yeah laws. that's interesting in the west i would be interested in some of that because yeah the risk scoring right the threat scoring well, in the uh, West, we are we have the highest suicide rates, and there's oftentimes speculation that that can correlate to the lack of oxygen in higher elevation areas. Um, there's the sort of resilience myth, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and, and people are less likely to reach out for help. But because of those problems, then you start looking for the red flags in behavior, and if you have a screen that can start sensing your agitation, right? Yeah. Then, then we ju- we're just here to help you. We're just in, in the Amazon drone is going to bring the medication to you because you're exhibiting some behavior flags for, for agitation. And, and don't you just want to increase your dopamine levels so that you're okay with, with this new normal. So I, I think that is an area to certainly watch and to be very aware that, you know, things that sound good on the, on the surface, you really have to think, you know, how, how would a sociopath benefit from this? You know, because I think another part of, another part of this is a sociopathic tendency among the power structure. When you, when you get to certain levels, I think, you know, you, you, however you do it, however you shut off your heart, your conscience, whatever happens, whether it's bred for that, you know, it seems like we are living in a predatory sociopathic environment and the gamification of, of, of where things are going just really seems tailored for that kind of mentality. So anything we can do to resist that, um, but to act in love, to to act in ways that support the human connections that we're making, um, keeping that first and foremost, so that we're not just letting the ego get out of control and and, and basically replaying some of these negative cycles. You know, so many well-intentioned people, they really want to help, but um, I, I don't know if some of these solutions that are going to be rolled out are going to be all that helpful. And I think you're helping people understand that no, the, there are things that we actually have to resist with every ounce. Don't let Jeff Bezos run your affordable housing project. Exactly. <laughs> or don't let Bill Gates run your farm. So Yes, exactly. Don't let him put nanotech in your soil. No, and we don't need to track every tomato. We don't, we don't need to know exactly the provenance of every, uh, every seed. No, but they're going to put the vaccines in the tomatoes. <sighs> I know, I know. But- I know. No, stop, we have to cut this out. But that's why we are here. That's why you're talking. And that's why I'm, I'm hoping to get more people interested in, in listening to this conversation because I have learned a lot tonight. Um, and I'm so, so thankful that you've taken the time to, to speak with me. So Allison McDowell, All right. anything else you would like to say before we, before we wrap up? 
No, did I say I'm at Wrench in the Gears? If people want to know more, my blog is Wrench in the Gears. And I have a YouTube channel, Allison McDowell. It's nothing fancy, but I have a lot of interviews in my like other playlists. So and I would encourage people if they want to know more. I mean, this was this was a brief conversation for really big, complicated topics. So please look into Allison's research, Wrench in the Gears, look at her YouTube, listen to her many podcasts performance <laughs> and um and we will keep this conversation going and i will keep in touch because i think there's there's going to be some more stuff to um to share notes on so so thank you yeah, so much like I, I all really, right good night. good night talk to you later okay. uh yes unfortunately the talk to you later was not going to happen um after those disagreements over uh the crypto currencies and whether or not to use it um, so Allison McDowell, now sort of a purist in the anti-crypto crusade, um, really wanting to sort of, I think, put people that, that use crypto to mitigate their own risk in this weird financial world. Um, it's just an, unf an, an unfortunate thing. But I do still recommend checking Allison McDowell's research. You can find her at Wrench in the Gears. Uh, one of her colleagues is at Peace of Mindful, Steffers. Um, so Mark Torkowski's old blog, that's, that's right. It's a, it's a weird, small world. Um, when across on the other side of, the, of America, you've got um, Steffers and Allison McDowell doing some of this research into the transhumanist technocratic agenda of the sociopathic elite. So with that said, if you want to reach out to me, um, you can reach me at willskink at yahoo.com. That's W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K at yahoo.com. I'm also on Telegram, Twitter at madpoet19 bunch of other places so seek me out if you choose to do so i will continue posting old conversations old as in within the past year um, and there will be some new stuff coming up and some exciting things happening so please stay tuned thank you for listening